I'm sorry, Miss Teacher. No, I don't have my homework. The dog ate it. No, I'm sorry, Mr. Banker. I don't have my payment this month. There was too much month at the end of my money. The truth is, is that we have become a nation of excuses. We have excuses for almost everything. We have a constant search for causes for someone's bad behavior. We're always seeking someone to blame or something to blame. It doesn't matter whether you are going through your school work or your work work. Whether it is a person being absent, being tardy, failure to produce something, it appears today that everyone wants to have an excuse as to why they didn't show up, as to why they were late, as to why they didn't do what they were supposed to do. But someone said, I have a good reason. Oh, there's a lot of difference between a reason and an excuse. A reason is when a person has no choice. It's outside the realm of their ability. And so they say, here is why I could not, rather than here is why I did not. An excuse is when you and I have a choice. We may not like the choice. We may not like the consequences. But when you and I have a choice... There's really no excuse. I have a lot to say this morning, and uh, I want to beg your patience and your indulgence this morning. I want to encourage you to do two things. I want you to get your Bibles, and I want you to sharpen your mind, because what we're going to do is we're going to, first of all, look at some examples of some excuse makers We could spend a lot of time with this, but here's what we're going to do. We're just going to go one, two, three, four, five, and we're going to see excuse makers as they try to offer excuses for their disobedience, whether it was overt, that's something they were not supposed to do, or whether their disobedience was more passive in the sense that they didn't do something they were supposed to do. Second of all, we want to take the passage that Brother Justin just read to us from Luke chapter 14, and we want to do an exposition. We want to see it in its context. And then finally, we want to talk about embracing responsibility, taking ownership for the choices you and I make. When we start talking about people who have made excuses, the Bible's literally filled with them. There are a number of people, as you and I approach our Bibles, who will say, I didn't do this, I didn't do that, and they will try to excuse their behavior as if there was a justifiable reason. As we begin, we need to think about Adam. And I know you all are familiar with the fall of Adam and Eve, how that being placed in the Garden of Eden, Eve was deceived by the serpent to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And after they ate of it, they realized they were naked. They tried to clothe themselves. God came walking in the garden. Adam heard God, and so he went and hid himself. When God asked him, where are you and what are you doing? 
He said, I was naked and I hid myself. And God's response was, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? Then the man said, the woman you gave me to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, and then he begins to pronounce the punishment. I want you to notice Adam's excuse. It was, God, you gave me the woman. How am I to be held responsible for the choice I made? She gave to me and I ate. And then God looks to Eve, and what is this that you have done? Well, The serpent deceived me. That's my excuse. Could Adam have done what he knew he ought to have done? Obviously he could. Could Eve have chosen to do what God told her to do? Well, obviously she could. You see, the truth is, that's only an excuse. You go to Genesis chapter 12, as well as Genesis chapter 20. I will remind you that Abraham... As a man of faith, at times, did not always exhibit that faith. He sinned and did things that God would not have had him to do. And in Genesis chapter 12, he goes down to Egypt. And in Genesis chapter 20, he goes to a king, a local king, by the name of Abimelech. In both instances, he does the same thing. Genesis 12, now there was a famine in the land and Abram went down to Egypt to dwell there for the famine was severe in the land. And it came to pass when he was close to entering Egypt that he said to Sarai his wife, Indeed I know that you are a woman of a beautiful countenance. Therefore it will happen when the Egyptians see you that they will say, This is his wife. And they will kill me but they will let you live. Please say that you're my sister, that it may be well with me for your sake, and that I may live because of you. When you get to chapter 20, to Abimelech, it says, Then Abimelech said to Abram, What have you done in what did you have in view that you have done this thing? And Abraham said, Because I thought. Surely the fear of God is not in this place, and they will kill me on account of my wife. But indeed, she is truly my sister. She is the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife, and it came to pass when God caused me to wander from my father's house that I said to her, this is your kindness that you should do for me. In every place where we go, say of me, he is my brother. Now, I could spend a lot of time talking about the excuses of Abraham, but he tried to excuse his deception. If you just survey what he said to both Pharaoh and Abimelech, you will see that he practiced situation ethics. Here I am, and you have to realize, I've gone down to Egypt. I I really can't help going there because there's a famine in the land. Or he would say, because there's not the fear of God in this place. 
You see, wherever you go and whatever you do, you can't use that as an excuse. And then he used the excuse of self-preservation. Well, look, if I do not tell this lie, they're going to kill me. He didn't know that. That was his supposition. And then you look, he then says, well, technically that is correct. She is my sister. And yet he knew quite well that both Pharaoh and Abimelech were led to believe that she was not his wife. You see Abraham trying to use an excuse to try to justify. Could he have done differently? Could he have made a chosen, says, okay, whatever the situation is, I'm going to do what's right. Could he, as faithful men of God have done throughout the ages, say, even if it takes my life, I'm going to do what is right? Obviously he could. So this was a choice. This was an excuse. This wasn't a reason. Go with me now to the book of Exodus, chapter 3. God chose Moses to lead the children of Israel out of the Egyptian bondage back to the promised land. And when God chose Moses, Moses began to try to argue with God about whether or not he would do this. When you get to chapter 3 and verse 11, But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh, and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? So he said, I will certainly be with you, and this shall be a sign that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, The I am has sent me to you. You go on into chapter 4. You get to verse 1. Then Moses answered and said, But suppose they will not believe me or listen to my voice. Suppose they say the Lord has not appeared to you. Drop down to verse 10. Then Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent, neither before nor since you have spoken to your servant, but I am of a slow speech and of a slow tongue. Drop down to verse 13. But he said, Oh, my Lord, please send by the hand of whomever or whoever else you may send. He began to produce excuse after excuse after excuse. Lord, I can't do this. I'd like you to contrast this with the ones of Adam and Abraham. Both of those were sins of commission. But for Moses, it is a sin of omission. He's not doing what God has told him to do. How many times do people look for excuses not to do something? Solomon spends a lot of time in the book of Proverbs talking about the sluggard. The New King James translates it the lazy man. And he talks about how the lazy man will put more effort and to try to get out of doing something than if he had just done it in the start, in the first place. You get to chapter 26, verse 13. The lazy man says there's a lion in the road, 
a fierce lion in the street. I can't do it. There's, there's some reason that prevents me. You drop down to verse 16. The lazy man is wiser in his own eyes than seven men that, who can answer sensibly. For every reason that you produce why someone ought to do something, here he comes up with one excuse right after the other. That's exactly what Moses did in this case. You go to the book of 1 Samuel. When you get to 1 Samuel, you find Saul being anointed as the new king over God's people. He's the first king. There's a number of things that are going to take place, and one of the things that's going to take place is Samuel tells him in chapter 13, wait until I arrive. And then we're going to begin with you as the new king over Israel. There's going to be a second instance when we get to 1 Samuel chapter 15. There God is going to give Saul one of his first major tasks, and that is to go and utterly destroy the Amalekites. And yet in both of these, we're going to see Saul respond with excuses. Notice with me 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 11. And Samuel said, what have you done? Saul had offered sacrifices. And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattered from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines were gathered together at Michmash, stop. He's already offered three excuses. Number one, the people were scattered from me. I couldn't keep everybody together. I had to do it. Second of all, when you did not come within the days appointed, excuse me, you didn't wait to the end of the day, Saul. Had you waited to the end of the day, yes, Samuel would have arrived. That the Philistines were gathered together at Michmash. I had to because my enemy was gathered around me. Pick up with verse 12. And then I said, the Philistines will now come down upon me at Gilgal. And I have not made supplication to the Lord. Therefore, I felt compelled and offered a burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. You see, he actually ends up blaming God. Oh, I felt compelled because if I don't offer an offering to God, God's somehow not going to bless me get to chapter 15 you remember he's supposed to go and utterly destroy the Amalekites everything they have Samuel comes back and he hears the lowing of oxen he hears the bleeding of sheep and he knows that Saul has not done that which he was told to do and Saul said to Samuel but I have obeyed the voice of the Lord and gone on the mission which the Lord sent me and brought back Agag, king of, the, of Amalek. And I have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took of the plunder, sheep and oxen, the best things which should have been utterly destroyed to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. Saul again 
claims I've done what I was supposed to do, but he didn't. He brought back Agag. He allowed the people, if he was not guilty himself, by allowing them, by extension, he was because he was the king. And the reason, the justification, oh, it's not a reason, it's an excuse to sacrifice to the Lord God in Gilgal. You see what you start observing. He blames the people. He blames them for scattering back in chapter 13. He blames them for bringing back the spoil in chapter 15. He blamed the prophet Samuel for not coming in chapter 13 as expected. He blamed the Philistines for pushing him to act prematurely. He blamed the petition of God as the need for his rashness of either offering the sacrifice earlier or offering some kind of sacrifice to God. Oh, excuse after excuse after excuse. Now I come back to Luke 14. As I look at Luke 14, I'm not going to reread this section because Brother Justin did a great job reading it for us earlier. But I do want to point you to the context. If you've got your Bibles open, you look at verse 1. And what's the first thing that you see in Luke 14, verse 1? Now it happened as he went into the house of one of the rulers of the Pharisees to eat bread... On the Sabbath, they watched him closely. Folks, you've got to understand when it is, where it is, and what's taking place. When it's a Sabbath day, where the house of a Pharisee, what is he doing? He's eating bread. Visualize a room full of folks, a feast, if you will, at this Pharisee's house. The Lord is not going to pass this opportunity to rebuke the Pharisees for their errors. In fact, there's going to be several of them. One of the first things he does in verses 2 through 6, he points out that they've already been wrong about the Sabbath day. In verses 2 through 6, he asks them the question, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? There's a man there who has dropsy. Is it okay to heal? Well, he points out, you would help your ox or your donkey. Is it not then lawful to do good on the Sabbath day? He points out they're hypocritical. He points out they're wrong on that. The second thing, he points out that they're wrong about their seating. Oh, yeah. Reclined around the table were a number of people at this Pharisee's house to eat bread. Look at verses 7 through 11. He talked about those people who were invited to a, a feast and they chose the best places. And he talked about a person having to be tapped on the shoulder and, excuse me, you've got to move down, you're not as important. They had this idea that wherever you sit means you're more important than someone else. Quite often at a meal there'll be a head table and Usually the speaker and the person who's presiding will be sitting at that table. And some people have this idea that those who sit at the head table are somehow more important, more valuable. And in fact, in their minds, it's almost like you have some sort of hierarchy. The closer you are to the center, the closer you are to the host, that says you're more valuable than someone else. 
And Jesus talked about in verse 11 about humbling a person's self. You see, they were wrong because they had this idea about humility. They were also wrong about the ones who were being solicited to come. When you get to verses 12 through 14, he again talks about this dinner and those people who were invited. And who do you invite? Do you invite your relatives, your family, your friends, or really your rich neighbors? And why do you do that? Because they'll invite you back. Because of the prestige you get from it. And Jesus talked about you've misunderstood who you ought to be soliciting to come to your meal. Wow, he's already dealt with the Sabbath. He's already dealt with the seating. He's already dealt now with those whom they've solicited. And you get to verse 15, and they're wrong about their status. Now, when one of those who sat at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is he who will shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. Oh, now you really want a great invitation? You get an invitation to come and eat at the kingdom of God. That sets up this parable in Luke 14, verses 16 through 24. The Lord is going to try to teach them something in this. The Pharisees had professed a love for God and a love for God's word, and yet, in reality, they were rejecting it. Let me illustrate. They said they loved the law, but the law said you honored your father and your mother. They created an intricate system where they didn't have to do that. And Jesus said to them, all too well you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your tradition. Luke 7 and verse 30, But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the will of God for themselves, not having been baptized by Him. Oh yes, we love God. We love what God says. Well, okay, are you going to do it? No. Well, then you really don't love God. But you see, in this parable... There's a double invitation. There's, first of all, the initial invitation that goes out to say, I'm going to have a feast. I'm going to have a great supper. And you're invited. And you, at that point in time, and say, yes, I'll be willing to come. And then when the time arrives, you send out a second invitation that says, okay, all things are ready Come to the feast. And yet now the response is not, okay, I'm ready to come, but I've got this excuse or that excuse. Let me parallel that with you with their views of the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament said there is a Savior coming. His name is the branch. He's Emmanuel. He's God with us. Oh, we're looking for this coming of this Savior, this Messiah, this Son of God. And when He arrives, what do they do? They reject Him. Of course, Isaiah 53 said that we're going to do that. We're not going to esteem Him. We're not going to appreciate Him. The Pharisees had said and professed a love for God and a looking for the Savior. And what do they do? They reject 
him. Now, to some of them, these excuses may sound legitimate. Oh, I I bought a piece of land. I've got to go and see it. I bought five yoke of oxen. I've got to go test them. I've married a wife. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 20, verses 5 through 7. The officer shall speak to the people, saying, What man is there who has built a new house and is not dedicated? Let him go and return to his house, lest he die in battle and another man dedicated. And what man is there who has planted a vineyard and is not eaten it? Let him go and return to his house, lest he die in battle and another man eat it. And what man is there who is betrothed to a woman and is not married her? Let him go and return to his house, lest he die in battle and another man marry her. You see, land, working your fields, marrying a wife, oh, doesn't this provide some sense of legitimacy? Oh, no, it doesn't. First of all, Deuteronomy chapter 20 doesn't apply because this is not battle. This is a meal. Second of all, it doesn't apply because all of them had accepted the initial invitation. Yes, I will come. But when the second invitation comes, they say, no, no, I've got another. I've got an excuse. The guy who bought the piece of land, why in the world are you buying land without having seen it to start with? I bought five yoke of oxen. I've got to go test them. What do you mean you're buying five yoke of oxen and you haven't tested them before you bought them or know the character of the man from whom you bought them? Well, I've married a wife. Well, didn't you know you were going to get married when you received the initial invitation? There's no excuse here. Now, very quickly, let's talk about embracing our own responsibility. Each one of us must own up to our own obligations and our own failures. Yes, all of us must learn to stand and say, I'm responsible. David learned that in Psalm 32, verse 5. I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Verse 18 of chapter 38. For I will declare my iniquity. I will be in anguish over my sin. I've got to say, I did it, Lord. I am responsible. I'm owning up to it. I'm sorry, teacher. The dog didn't eat my homework. I didn't do my homework. Give me the grade I deserve. No, I didn't pay my payment this month because I blowed all my money at the fair. If you need to repossess what I've borrowed the money for, then go right ahead. Own up to your responsibilities. 1 John 1, 8 through 10. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. It's time that we recognize sin is sin and we have to take responsibility for it. And you have to face the consequences of your choices. 
You see, if I embrace responsibility, that recognizes I know that I have made an error and those errors have to be paid for and I have to accept the responsibilities for them as well. Don't think that God somehow doesn't know what's going on. In Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and 13, the writer of the book of Hebrews says, The Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of the soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Verse 13, And there's no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him of whom we must give an account. God sees it all. Ecclesiastes chapter 12 verse 14. For God will bring every work into judgment. Including every secret thing. Whether good or evil. You offer an excuse. God knows. Whether or not you are right or wrong. Now let's make it apply here. What's your excuse for not obeying the gospel? You notice I didn't say what's your reason. What's your excuse for not obeying the gospel? Oh, but my mother and my father, they belong to this religious group or that religious group. Well, do you think your mother and your father would want you to be lost because of them? I can tell you the rich man didn't want his brethren to be lost. Well, what's your excuse? Well, I'm afraid of what others might say to me or about me. Moses evidently was a fearful of some of the same things. That didn't change his obligations. Folks, your soul is too important for you to let an opportunity pass to obey the gospel. Don't start throwing up excuses. Take responsibility. What is your excuse for not being faithful? If you're not... And let me put this very carefully. If you're a Christian and you've not committed yourself enough to even attend faithfully, what about living the Christian life every day? What's your excuse? Well, I have a lot of things I have to do in my life. Well, so what? Everybody else does too. I've got this problem. I'm not eloquent. I can't do this. I can't do that. You sound just like Moses. Excuses, excuses, excuses. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8. God said, we need somebody. I need somebody I can send. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Then I said, here am I. Send me. If you're not a Christian, please come to the front down here. Take a seat. We'll assist you in becoming a child of God through faith in Jesus Christ, the repentance of your sins, and being baptized. You know you're an unfaithful child of God. You know you're not doing what you need to do. Come forward. Let's pray with you. So important for your soul's sake. Would you come while we stand and sing?